hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. Perhaps you've already turned there, but what Yusuf just read from Matthew 8, starting in verse 23, is where we will be for the next several minutes. You'll find Matthew 8, 23 on page 813 if you would be blessed by using one of the Bibles that are provided in the backs of the chairs. And as I try to say, if one of those Bibles would be a blessing to you or someone that you know to just take and either keep yourself or give, give to someone else, please do that. We would love for them to be used that way. The word marvel is perhaps for us a bit less in line with its perhaps original meaning than it used to be. Probably related to Marvel comics and Marvel movies and Marvel TV shows and whatever else. You see it all over the place. Commercials, TV, stores, internet. Word Marvel being before our eyes all the time, perhaps has dulled its meaning for us. But when the word Marvel is used in Scripture, it is meant to be taken very seriously. And it is a word that we find in today's passage. This passage is the second group of the three groups of three in Matthew's narrative section here. And this second group of miracle stories that Matthew is relaying to his readers and listeners, this second group of three in a group of three has both geographical and thematic similarities. The common setting of these three stories is the Galilean Sea, or lake as some might call it, and its common theme is the unparalleled and inhuman authority of Jesus. You might say that the theme of this entire section of three is, what sort of man is this? You see that phrase, in today's passage, but you also see it lived out in the two that follow. People marveling at what kind of a man must this Jesus be. This passage here is the first appearance in Matthew's gospel of Jesus' control over the creation and the natural world. It's showing Jesus' ability to do what mere humans like you and I cannot do. He calms storms in the first of this group of three. The second has him casting out demons, and then the third and final in this section is him forgiving sins. These are not things that mere men do. And this short narrative, verses 23 through 27, begins with a connection to the first verse of the previous passage, which is verse 18, where Jesus instructed his disciples to go to the other side of Galilee here, to the other side of the sea because of the great crowds that were gathering and his then need to move on. And then here in verse 23, that journey to the other side of the Sea of Galilee begins. And what follows is a story that Christians for centuries have loved to read and tell and sing about. I'm going to read it again. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. 
And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? A story that Christians have loved to read and to tell and to sing about for centuries, but a story that we must not read simply as some kind of metaphor, if you will, for trusting God. The call to trust God is certainly here. I'm going to go there in just a few minutes. But in terms of just understanding what exactly Matthew is saying in this passage, we've got to see it as yet another in a long list of evidences that Matthew is presenting as proof of his claims that he has been asserting from the beginning, that this Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, the one with all authority. And I think this passage presents us with five characteristics of Jesus' authority that Matthew wants us to understand. Five characteristics of Jesus' authority that this little narrative points us to in Matthew's mission of of showing it. The first characteristic of Jesus' authority is that it is authority unthreatened by creation. Verse 24 tells us of a great storm, but he was asleep. The authority of Jesus is not threatened by creation. The readers and listeners of this account for the first time when it was originally written and distributed and read and and heard might think that Jesus was in big trouble at first reading of the reality of this storm rising up. Violent storms on the Sea of Galilee were known to occur and they were notoriously dangerous when they did. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level and therefore it is subject to rapidly rising hot air that draws violent winds in with cold air and that churns up the water and there's a stormy, windy problem. And so it's not hard to surmise that some of the disciples themselves could have known of or could have known experientially some whose lives had been dramatically affected by such storms. And what was the former profession of several of Jesus' disciples? They were fishermen. They were fishermen who would have spent time on the Sea of Galilee. And so it's not like these men had never seen a storm before, and you wouldn't think that they would be perhaps so easily scared of a storm as if they had never dealt with or experienced one on the sea. And yet, they are shaken by this one. The text says that it is a great storm in the middle of verse 24. It is a big deal, and it is worded that way very purposefully. In fact, the Greek for great storm is the word seismos. That sound like an English word to you? Seismic, having to do with shaking and shock and even an earthquake. This is a really big shaking storm. Now, we don't live near a great lake or a big sea or even the ocean here in our middle of the continent uh, of the United States here in Colorado. So maybe the closest to it that we can relate to, unless, of course, any of us have lived in a region like that before, is one of our summer storms where the thunder is just crashing and tornado sirens perhaps are going off, rain is pouring, wind is 
crazy. It's hailing even. The power goes out. Just this past Tuesday evening, there were some pretty strong winds. They didn't last very long, but they lasted long enough. If you notice it, you see leaves just flying down the street. You take note. Wow, something powerful going on here. And so for this great storm, if you need some help relating to it, just think about one of those storms around here that stresses you out. Your plants are at risk. Your car might get hail damaged. Your basement might get flooded. Your patio tables might shatter. It's a great storm. But where is Jesus? He is sleeping. And I just love that. Why was he sleeping? Was he tired? He was a man after all. For sure. Could certainly be related to an ordinary human need for sleep. It was certainly a particularly tiring season for him as a man ministering to many people. And of course, he just needed sleep. Just like you and I do, maybe he needed to catch up a little bit. Kind of reminds me of, of the gentleman I introduced to you a moment ago, Phil, back in college, who could just seemingly fall asleep anywhere at any time. I don't know, is he even back there? Is he hiding? Or did he step out for a moment? <laughs> Phil could sleep anywhere at any time, including, I'll pick on him because he's not really in the room, in a choir performance at one time. Is that correct? Yeah. So here is Jesus asleep. I'm not sure if... Phil would have fallen asleep in this storm, but Jesus did. Maybe it was not only related to his physical human fatigue, though. Maybe part of what God was doing here was showing that Jesus' authority was unthreatened by creation. Jesus was and forever is fully man, but he also was and forever is also fully God. And so Jesus was not surprised by this storm. He would have known it was coming. He knew how bad storms like this could get. And even apart from his divine omniscience, he would have known experientially what a storm in the Sea of Galilee could be like. He probably lived far away enough that he hadn't experienced a lot of them, but he didn't live far enough away that he had never heard of them. So Jesus wasn't worried. He was sleeping. He was unthreatened. He was unfazed. He was even resting. His authority was not at risk. The storm was not going to deter the mission that he had been given by his father. The waves that were, as the text says, swamping the boat were not putting him and his authority in danger. The way Luke puts it in his account is that the waves were getting into the boat. They were literally in danger of drowning. That's probably what swamping here means in verse 24. But though this man who of whom it was said in the previous passage did not have the shelter that foxes and birds have, this creator did have authority over that creation. And to us it might seem like the people and systems and circumstances that are under God's rule today do threaten his authority. Our world is crazy, and it's always been, but it has felt uniquely so these last couple years. I had a conversation with someone back in 2020. A remark was made something along the lines of, it just feels like Satan's going to win. And of course, I sought to graciously say, no, there's no chance of that. But it feels so often like the authority of our God is 
Jesus' authority is unthreatened by anything or anyone that he has created. Now, here is where you might start to think the application to your life in this passage is, so we don't have to feel threatened by creation either. And in one sense, sure, you don't need to feel threatened by creation because Jesus is on your side, amen. But on the other hand, you are threatened by creation, right? Have you ever seen videos of these really stupid people getting really close to the bison in Yellowstone to take a picture? They need to feel more threatened by creation. The point here isn't that Jesus wants his people to become like one of those people and not worry about the the threat of certain aspects of creation. The point is that Jesus isn't like us. And that's what his disciples realize at the end of this passage. What sort of man is this? That's the point here. So I said a moment ago that this is not just some kind of metaphorical encouragement for us to not be afraid and just trust God more. And that's certainly part of what we should take away. But Matthew's main point is Jesus' absolute, astonishing, and awe-inspiring authority. And so before you turn this story into a story about you and your life, make sure that you see that it is a story about Jesus. In fact, that leads into the second characteristic of Jesus' authority that's on display here. It's authority over circumstances that his people can't control. That's the point here. Jesus isn't like us. He has all authority. And in verse 25, a storm has blown up while Jesus is on a boat and he lays asleep. A storm of any kind, whether literal or figurative blows up in our faces and we freak out just like the disciples did look at verse 25 they went and woke him saying save us lord we're perishing they were not in control think about the situation here the setting here here are experienced fishermen on a boat during a storm and they're appealing to a carpenter to do something about what's going on I wonder what the conversation leading up to the the decision to wake up Jesus might have been like. Guys, this is getting crazy now. Where's the Lord? He's asleep. He's sleeping? Someone go wake him. They go and wake him. And they cry, first of all, save us, Lord. This phrase might seem a little familiar to you. Kyrie soson. Lord, save. It's a cry for help. It's an acknowledgement of their helplessness and of their desperate condition unless he chooses to intervene. And then secondly, they cry, we are perishing, which in other words, in the modern vernacular, we're all going to die. And again, that is the point here. The disciples had zero control over the circumstances around them. In this case, a horribly violent storm that in human terms threatened their lives, threatened their physical safety, at least from their perspective. And let's just acknowledge that at least to some extent here, they were acknowledging Jesus' authority at this moment. They did go to him and cry to him for help. They were not in control and they knew it. They knew that Jesus had differences than them and they went to him in desperation. And that's a good thing. And I'm convinced that that was the big picture of God's design here. 
you know, I've come to realize that part of the reason that I strongly have disliked characteristically our episodes of high and powerful winds that come to us from the front range of the Rockies is that it is a situation in which I am totally out of control. And I'm glad that the Lord brought me here to Colorado for several reasons, but this is one of them. God knows that I have a really hard time not being in control. And when things seem to me to be out of control or not going according to my plan or appear to me to be out of order, in my perception, my flesh so often jumps to the surface. I start trying to regain control, or at least what I think that would look like, even if it means I'm going to start sinning. Getting angry, getting irritated, getting anxious, getting fearful, getting moody, getting depressed. You know, that's exactly one of the things that God does with his children in situations where we are out of control. He deliberately puts us into situations where we are going to be tried and tested and then ultimately refined through the fire of that trial that will then reveal the sin that's inside of us. Putting us in situations where that's going to come out so that he can then deal with it later. And I think that's part of what God is doing here. Putting his disciples in a situation where they are not in control and forced to observe and acknowledge his control. And it's here that another characteristic of Jesus' authority comes into focus, that it's authority that is graciously exercised for his people's good. Look at verse 26 again. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Notice what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He does say that, but then he doesn't say after that. Now get back out there, and this time, try to not freak out. I'm in control, and if I'm asleep, you should take a hint. You're going to be fine. Now go straighten yourself out. You'll be all right. He doesn't say that. Those might be the kinds of ungracious words and thoughts that we have towards our children or towards fellow church members who are struggling with something or towards other Christians in other places, but not Jesus. He, unlike us, actually does have the right to judge harshly, but instead he asks for clarity. And verse 26 at the end says that he arose and rebuked the storm and everything goes calm. What a sight that must have been. Can you just imagine total chaos to perfect peace? From danger to safety. Though he knows that all will be well, he has got something far deeper and more important than the weather to deal with. He does deal with the weather. And he graciously exercises his authority in order to restore his disciples to their feeling of safety and peace and calm and comfort. What grace this is. And don't you think he could have just stood up from his little resting spot there in the boat and started waxing eloquent about his sovereignty? Telling them all kinds of stuff that he had already said, by the way, about anxiety or started a new theological discourse of some kind. Matthew likes to, to sort of structure things around these discourses. This would have been a great place for one. Explaining them the extent of his authority. No, instead he's gracious. He 
deals with it, and in so doing also shows his mighty authority exercised graciously for the good of his people. His whole mission, then, you think about it, brothers and sisters, was about him graciously exercising his authority for the good of his people. Selflessly using his authority, graciously, sacrificially, caring for the people that he loved, the people that rejected him, the people who had been unfaithful to him for millennia, who had disobeyed him since he had created them, and who continued to resist him even when he physically showed up in front of their very eyes and told them who he was. John 3 says that he didn't come to use his authority to condemn the world, but to the world so that through him the world might be saved. He came as the king, but he died like a sinner. He became sin, 2 Corinthians says, who knew no sin so that the people that he loved could be righteous through faith in him. Paul says in Philippians that he did not regard his status as equal with God as something to be held on to or to boast about or to leverage for his own selfish desires. Rather, he took upon himself servanthood, this one with authority, and humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cursed cross. And as Jesus would later on hang Calvary's cursed tree bleeding and suffocating and dying, he would display the most profound instance of his authority used graciously for the good of his people. Sovereignly and divinely orchestrating events so that he would step in and be the atoning sacrifice for sin required for the salvation of his people. Doing it himself the death of a sinner even though he had never sinned. And lest anyone would get the impression that his death was proof that he didn't have authority in the first place, he rose. You want proof that Jesus has authority, my friends? Look at the cross and the empty tomb. And so Jesus deals with this storm graciously at the request of the people that he loves. But do you notice that he doesn't deal with the storm first? Here's the fourth characteristic of Jesus' authority. It's authority that should replace fear with faith. And here's where it gets really convicting, at least for me. Jesus addresses the disciples before he addresses the storm. He is apparently more worried about their hearts of fear than he is about the external trouble. They knew that Jesus had authority, or at least should have known, because he had told them and he had shown them. And of course, they did know to some extent because they cried out to him for help. But notice what Jesus says in response before he calms the storm in the very beginning of verse 26. He says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Think about it. Jesus had already taught them about the arrival of his kingdom and the reality of his kingship and how that should address the fears of his people. Turn, maybe you don't have to turn at all, one page back or so to Matthew 6. 
in the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 25, these are the words of Jesus to those gathered around him. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Here's the phrase, O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I encourage you to go back and listen to Brian's sermon on this passage just a handful of weeks ago. You see this phrase, though, O you of little faith, in this passage, just like you see it in our passage for this morning in Matthew. If Jesus had just only recently taught that his disciples need not be anxious about food and clothing and shelter, shouldn't it also stand to reason that his disciples should not be afraid in this situation? Now, you might say, but isn't this a life-threatening storm? Isn't that kind of a little different than worrying about food and clothing and shelter? Okay, fine, sure, I'll grant you it's a little bit different. But still, don't you think that if Jesus said that his people don't need to be afraid, and if they just seek his kingdom first, everything else will be taken care of, and if God takes care of birds and flowers, surely he'll take care of you, and that he can then be trusted in a violent storm, just like he can be trusted with how we're going to get our hours in at work or we're going to finish the school project we've got, how we're going to parent our kids, how you're going to make it through whatever trial you're facing. My friends, living in fear and anxiety is a horrible, draining, and painful way to live. But the worst thing about it is that it displays a lack of faith in God. And of course, I'm not talking about the kind of fear that you have that's healthy, like if a rattlesnake is in front of you or the dangers of playing with matches, stuff like that. I'm not talking about that. And it is, of course, very understandable to deal with anxiety in a variety of situations, whether legitimate or not. But isn't it interesting that even if we were to say, yeah, but playing with matches or rattlesnakes or cancer or something else is a little different, isn't it interesting that it's while they're in a violent, life-threatening storm that Jesus says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? His fear is not commended by Jesus here. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He actually uses that, that phrase, O you of little faith, is one work, word in Greek. I just put it up there so you can see it. It means you of little faith. 
Only God picks four. It occurs only five times in the New Testament and four times in Matthew. It's a point that Matthew wants to get across. And every time it's used, it refers to disciples. And every time it's used by Matthew, at the root of the situation is some kind of failure on the part of the disciples to see beyond the immediate situation that they're in, in that precise moment. And it is a word that refers not to the amount of faith, but the quality of faith. Strong faith versus weak faith, not big faith versus little faith. Because after all, Jesus said that faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. It's not about the size of it. This is not an indictment of having small faith. It's an indictment of having weak faith. And it's a tragic word in this context, in the other context in which it appears, because it is an indictment of disciples of Jesus, those who, whose center must be faith. So Matthew clearly wants us to have the impression that this cry for help was not a reflection of commendable faith, rather one of fear. The fear that they are expressing and experiencing evidently is not something that Jesus approves of because he rebukes it. rebukes it because disciples of Jesus need not to be afraid. Not even in a violent storm. Why? Because he is the king whose authority should replace fear with faith in the hearts of his disciples. You know, I think that if I was one of the disciples and Jesus said, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? I might have wanted to say, hey, I came and asked, didn't I? Isn't that faith? And again, I do want to acknowledge this, that yes, it was an act of faith to go see him and ask him. They did actually ask him to save them from drowning, to save them from perishing. But the fact remains that they didn't have the kind of faith that would preclude him from saying, oh, you of little faith. They didn't have the kind of faith that demonstrated that they were being kept from fear is why he then calls out their fear. Maybe if they had simply come up to him and said, Lord, will you rebuke this storm, please, in a calm way, maybe the, he, they would have gotten a different response. But they said, we're going to die. We're perishing. You see the seemingly small but important nuanced difference here? Their response was fear-filled, not faith-filled. Matthew is clearly contrasting faith with fear here. And here is why. the authority of Jesus, his disciples need not fear. Even in a violent storm. Rather, his disciples trust I think I need to make a brief note here that I think it takes it too far to say, as some might say, that the disciples should have known that if Jesus had died here, the kingdom mission would have come to an end with them and the whole plan for redemption would have failed and that's why they were rebuked. I respect scholars and authors that I read who think this, but I just think that's taking it a little too far. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't, however, think it takes it too far to say that they should have remembered the displays of authority that they had already seen in Jesus and therefore should not have been afraid to trust in him. And so I must ask, 
you, as I've asked myself and have felt convicted over and over again this week, studying and meditating on this passage, does our understanding, our experience, our recall of Christ's authority move us to act in faith, to live out our professed belief that he is the king who has called us to his, to his side and to be his people, called us to be busy doing kingdom work? Are you afraid? Are we afraid of whatever it is in our lives that seem to be threatening our normal, our expectations, our plans, such as a great king? Are you trusting? Are we trusting that Jesus' authority over all of this stuff is enough reason for us to proceed with faith, not fear? And it's, this can get really practical. Are we afraid to do the things that God has clearly called us to? Are we afraid to remove things from our lives that get in the way of kingdom work? Because you don't know how life is, is going to go if you make that change. And change is scary. Are we afraid to take that step of faith to just speak to that one person that the Holy Spirit has been laying on our hearts over and over and over again, whether to invite them to a fellowship group gathering or invite them to read the Bible with you or whatever it is. Ask if they'd like to get coffee and just tell your life story. Do you see how practical this can get? Our faith in the reality of Jesus' absolute authority and power ought to keep us out of the ruts of just living in maintenance, surviving. And it ought to move us to mission. But the quality of our faith is brought into light when something that scares us shows up. And if you're like me, your faith is often weak. But my friends, the same Jesus who calls out his disciples little faith is also mighty faith. That's what he calls us to. And so friends, be assured, Jesus is for you. He is not against you. He may be saying to you today through his word, like he did to the disciples that day, oh, you of little faith. But you know, if he is, even though there's things you may need to repent of, you can remember that you're in good company with these disciples and that Jesus' blood shed on the cross is proof that even though you're unworthy, you're not worthless, and he loves you. He died for you. He rose for you. He's for you. And so like so many of you do, Go, follow Jesus in faith, not fear. Here's one more characteristic of Jesus' authority here. The fifth and final is that it's authority leading to marvels. That's right there in verse 27 at the end of this little episode. Like I said at the beginning, the word marvel is perhaps less powerful to us than it used to be, but it is the word that's used here in verse 27, and it is a serious one, not really a fun one like it might be to us when we think of comics and comic book characters. It is a serious word. I put it up on the screen for you so you can see the definition that means to wonder at, to be amazed, to be astonished out of one's senses and awestruck. Just this past summer, 
We walked as a family into Disneyland for the first time. And I confess I had a kind of marvel come over me. More so, though, years ago, walking into the old Yankee Stadium. But it is not the kind of marvel that's being described here. It's more the kind of marvel that I think our family felt when we approached for the first time in our lives, also this summer, the Grand Canal. Or like that time when I was a teenager and I stood at the base of the Empire State Building and looked up. Suddenly overcome with this existential realization that I am very small. And then even begin to have these feelings of meaninglessness or unimportance in the grand scheme of things. The marvel in verse 27 is something more like that. Astonished out of one's mind. Because that's what it's like to see Jesus calm a storm. It's a display of his authority that leads to marvels. It's what became apparent to the disciples It's what Matthew wanted his readers to understand, that this Jesus of Nazareth was no mere human. He was controlling the weather and the sea at the end of verse 27. To an astute Jew, by the way, this would have brought to mind recurring Old Testament themes of the untamable nature of the sea and the wind and its danger, and the fact that only God has power over it. In fact, chose the call to worship this morning from Psalm 89 based on that reality. Speaking of God's power over the sea when it says, as we read together just a few minutes ago, that he rules the raging of the sea and stills its rising waves. And so to watch Jesus still the sea and calm the wind would have been, for an astute Jew, certainly a reminder of this truth, that only God does such things, thus leading them to say, what sort of man is this? It's a question that will be answered, in a way, in the next story more explicitly than it is in this one, or it's a little more implicit. But in all three of this second group of three, what Matthew wants his readers and us to see is that Jesus has all authority, that he is the king, and that his authority is therefore unthreatened by creation. It extends to the circumstances we can't control. He graciously uses it for his people's good and that it should replace his people's fear with faith and lead them to marvel. So may God help us to take these words to heart, seeing this awesome display of his authority and follow him in faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please, as we often sing, plant these truths down deep in us and use them to shape and fashion us the likeness of our Savior, Jesus. This one whom we have seen only briefly this morning in our text, this one with all authority, this one who rules creation, who's sovereign over our circumstances, circumstances, and who is yet so gracious to us. May we, like the disciples, be characterized as those who, when we see him in your word, 
say, oh, what could I do? God, grow our understanding of who Jesus is and use that growing understanding to make us people who trust him more and follow him all the days of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few minutes and meditate and pray quietly in our own hearts in response to God's word. storms of life are